so glad that you're here, even on this beautiful day, um, to be a part of Outward Church and what God is doing here. Uh, we're in a series, we're actually wrapping up today, God willing, um, that is called Live Life Outward. And it, we just basically wanted to start the year off and just say, uh, what the heck are we here for? Like, why did you come today? And why do we use an awkward name like Outward uh, for the name of our church? And ultimately, I'm going to get into some of that today, but this is a campaign to live radically on mission. It really is an encouragement to our church and to the people who are a part of our church or the, to the people who are becoming a part of our church to learn how to live outwardly. Uh, many times when we become a part of the church, something that can happen is that we end up becoming people who are just regulars. We kind of file in, we figure out what the system is, and we kind of do that. But one of the things that we don't often understand is what God wants us doing on a regular basis, what he wants us to be a part of, how he wants us to connect with our community and with the people around us. Sometimes we can find ourselves saying, you know, I'm not very good at that, and so that's not really what I'm, I'm sp supposed to do. But what I see in the scriptures, what I see is that there is a power that, that helps us to live radically on mission, to live outward lives. There's this power, and then there's this passion that comes along with that. There's this passion that just drives us. It causes us to go after God and to find out who he is. But more than that, to say, it, you've got to hear this. You've got to know it. You've got to understand it. Because the only way to tell people about Jesus is if you really love Jesus. If you don't really love Jesus, please don't tell people about Jesus because you're not really going to be doing anybody any favors, including Jesus. Because here's the thing. People who love Jesus tell other people about Jesus but then we see out of that flow, out of this passion to live on mission, this passion for Jesus, there's a product that flows. There's a product that happens. And so from the very beginning of our church, we have been talking about some of the things that I'm going to tell you about today out of the scriptures. And there's a lot of scripture here. So this should comfort you in that our church is based wholeheartedly on what the scriptures say. It's based on what's uh what jesus has told us it's based on what's been passed down through the holy scriptures and so we want to communicate that today and so i'm i'm glad that you're here um to to be a part of this we're going to start in luke chapter 24 and it, it's it's kind of wrapping up luke chapter 24 we'll pick it up in verse 36 in just a second as you're turning there this uh is really talking about um after Jesus' resurrection, what's taking place and what's happening. And really, what we want to key into is that if, if we are excited about the resurrected Jesus, what's, what's our marching orders from that point? What should that look like? And what does that mean? And so what happens is this, is that in Luke chapter 24, verse 36, this is one of my favorite uh, conversations that Jesus has right after his resurrection it says as they were talking about these things jesus himself stood among them and said to them peace to you and all of a sudden jesus just kind of shocks everybody he just kind of appears in the room and he says peace to you and it, then it says but they were startled so jesus comes in and i think jesus is kind of playing a little bit of a prank because he just comes in and says, hey guys watch this ha peace to you 
and they're startled, and, he, and, and, and it says, and frightened, and thought they saw a spirit. And Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you, uh, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and and ate before them. And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, Jesus just said this, like everything that's taken place had to happen. The Old Testament scriptures that came before Jesus, the Old Testament, before Jesus uh, descending to earth, the Old Testament scriptures are pointing to the fact that Jesus was going to come and that he did come and that he was going to go to the cross and that he was going to be resurrected. And it says in verse 47, he says, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. And so what this is saying to us is this, is that if there truly is a risen Savior, if Jesus truly has been risen from the dead, if that's a true story, if that really happened, if I claim to believe that, and I hope that you do if you're here today, but if if that's what I claim to believe, then what should happen is this, is that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, but beginning with where they're at in Jerusalem. This must be proclaimed, but it says this, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you. Stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So there's this power source that Jesus says, you've got, to, you've got to go proclaim this. You've got to tell people about this, but I want you to stay here. I want you to stay here. Wait for the power to come. Wait for the power to be able to do what I've called you to do. Now turn with me to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We're kind of walking quickly through this, these passages telling us about what it looks like to be a Christian. So a Christian is someone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that he goes to the cross, that he dies, he's resurrected, he comes back and says, listen, you need to proclaim, but wait here until you receive the power. Acts 1.8, well, we'll start in 6, it says, so when they had come together, they asked him, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? His disciples are thinking this. Jesus has ascended. I'm sorry, he's been resurrected from the dead. And they're thinking to themselves, okay, now it's time to kick some tail. And we are going to take back Israel. And we're going to go get it back right now. 
Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, essentially, no. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Listen to this. To believe that Jesus is the Son of God, to believe that he's been resurrected from the dead, means this, that you are a witness to the risen Christ. That you're a witness to him. And that you, you have a role and you have a responsibility. And there's nobody who isn't a Christian who doesn't have this responsibility. Everyone who's a Christian has this responsibility to be a witness because you are a witness. If that's what, if that's what you believe, then you have a responsibility. And he says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He says this to his disciples. Now, Acts chapter 2 is where it gets weird. This is where it gets crazy because Acts chapter 2 is when the Holy Spirit comes. Now, now I, wa I want to caution you here real quick. And that is that there's a difference between being prescriptive and descriptive. Is it prescribing that this is what should be happen happening? Or is it describing what did happen? Now, this passage right here, I haven't seen God choose to do this in my lifetime. I pray that he does choose to do this. But this is what he did in this time. And it says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. This is when the Holy Spirit comes. And it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So these people, they get the Spirit of God. It comes down in a tongue. What's a tongue of fire look like? I have no idea. But it's like they're resting on them and it's just, it's just craziness. It's, just, it's coming unglued and they're just going, oh my goodness, what's happening right now? And it says, skip to verse 12, it says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said that they were filled with new wine. Pretty much people are looking on, they're going, Dude, these guys are so wasted right now, dude. <laughs> but Peter stands up and he gives a great explanation. I love this. He's, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people aren't drunk, as you supposed. It's only the third hour of the day. It's only 9 a.m. We haven't had time to get wasted. <laughs> we just got up. Give us a couple more hours and maybe. But right now, we're not drunk. We've just got the Spirit of God. I, don't, I think that's hilarious that he says this. And so he begins to preach to them this great sermon saying, we're not drunk, but this is the Spirit of God. Like the Spirit of God has come in power. And what you should take home from this is not necessarily that you're going to have a tongue of fire sitting on your shoulder or what have you, but that the Spirit of God is necessary for us to be able to be a witness for Jesus.
The Spirit of God has got to be the one that's got to go ahead of us. The Spirit of God is the one who's going to empower the work that we do for him. And so Peter goes on and, and he's speaking to his own countrymen. He's speaking to Israelites. He's, he's speaking to Israel. And so he says in verse 36 of the same chapter, chapter 2, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. And so he brings boldly the message of the truth. And he says this to these people. He says, let's be clear on one thing. God has made this Jesus, the NIV says, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The guy that you killed, he is Lord. He's, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah, the one who you put to death. He is the one. And so he's boldly saying this to the people who just killed Jesus. He's saying to them, you killed him. That's boldness. He stands up in this boldness. And basically, they could have turned around and said, oh, yeah, we're, now we're going to kill you too. You know what I mean? And it's just over. But Peter stands up and he tells the truth about who Jesus is. Is. Do you want to know how you tell the truth about who Jesus is? By the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, as he comes and has, as he empowers our mission. He is the one that causes us to live radically on mission. Now, look at this. I, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But this is the power worked out. Look at what it says. And they, verse 42, I'm sorry. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, this Christian community has the power of God. The power of God comes on them and the preaching begins. The preaching begins and people are beginning to speak the truth of God and, there's, and they're saying what's really going on. There's an authenticity about what's happening. And it's creating this community that's, that's, based, that's committed to teaching, that's committed to uh, serving one another, that's committed to partaking of communion together or the Lord's Supper. They're committed to eating together. They're committed to serving one another. They're committed to serving their community. And there's something about them that is absolutely contagious within their community. Because day by day, the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. And so there's this power source that's happening and this new church that's, that's coming about and thousands of people are coming to him. It says in the, in the verses prior to this that when Peter preaches this, they're cut to the heart and they say, what should we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every single one of you. People are coming to know Jesus because this community is on fire with the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God has empowered them 
to do his work and to serve within their community. Now that's, now that's descriptive of what's been happening. The second thing that I want to tell you about is essentially prescriptive. Is that what has to happen for us to be able to see some semblance of what was happening in the early church, what has to be true in our life, what has to be taking place. And I want to take you to Ephesians, beginning in chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. You know, we've been talking out of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. In fact, I just want to read those for you real quick, which say, say this. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk, uh, walk in them. Now, what we've been talking about for the last several weeks is this, is that the person who understands the grace of God and understands that they deserved death, that they deserve the death that Jesus took on. The person that understands that. And they receive that by faith. Through the grace of God. And so it's not them doing it. The person who gets that. There's an, there's an overflow that's coming from their life. And it's causing them to realize this. That, that we have something to give back to God. It's not I give to God and so he gives to me. No, God gave to me in order that I could give back to him, in order that I could serve him. And so the Apostle Paul is going on here in the book of Ephesians, and he's laying down some principles which have been absolutely foundational for our church and for me personally as a pastor. Because when I got a hold of Ephesians, and I mean when I really understood what the book of Ephesians was telling me, my life took on a whole new dynamic. My life changed because I began to see, wait a minute, God has something that he wants me to do. Now, the thing that I didn't understand is that he is a power source for me. And so I began trying to make this happen on my own and trying to do this. But that's not what God wanted. He wanted me to see that, first of all, I've got to have his power to be able to serve him. I want to tell you, I spent a lot of years in ministry working and working and working and working, trying to seek the approval of others, trying to seek the approval of God. But let me just tell you, it's tiring. It wears you out. You get to a point where you just say, I can't do this on my own anymore. And so what has to happen is there has to be a power source, but there has to be this passion. There has to be this passion for who Jesus is and what he's done. So the Apostle Paul, in chapter 3, verse 8, he says this, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I just, I just, I know we're, we're going through a lot of stuff here this morning, but I just want you to read that with me, okay? To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The, not, just, not just kind of like, oh, the, the riches of Christ. Not just, oh, the goodness of God, and yes, yes, yes. No, Paul, Paul like, he just, he like gets like, 
gospel, man. I mean, he just, he just goes, good Lord. I mean, like the unsearchable riches of Christ. Like it just, it's like, it's coming out of him. And he just, he just goes, I just, I can't describe it. I can't get it off me. I can't, I can't quite tell you exactly what it means, but it's the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's like you could go high, you could go low, you could go anywhere you want, but the riches of Christ are all over and in everything and down every avenue that God is good and then you serve him some more and then you see, oh, God is good and then you serve him some more and you say, oh, God is good, but how can you know that? And it's because of this, because you keep coming to the realization that God, there's no way that you should accept me today. I know that you did yesterday and I know that yesterday, like I was, I was okay, but today I really fouled it up and Paul is saying this, no, 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 no. You don't even understand. The unsearchable riches of Christ mean this, that you drill down a little bit. You say, I think I got it all. I got the grace of God. I think I've got the riches of Christ. But then you go, no, no, no. There's more. You drill down and it's more. It's the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's over and over again and over and over again that God is just so good through Jesus. God is just so good. You know what? I wish on Monday morning I believed that. Because you know what? I preach a sermon and dude, do you know how many, I'm not, you know, I, this is not scripted. You know how many times I go off script? I probably shouldn't have said that, right? You know what happens on Monday morning? Those tapes start playing through my head. Dang it, why did I say that? Gosh. You know what I gotta believe? I gotta believe this, the unsearchable riches of Christ. That Matt, it's not about you, but it's about Jesus. It's about the unsearchable riches of him. I've got the power of God because I've got the spirit of God, but the passion of God comes from this. The passion for mission comes from this that his riches are unsearchable. That he's everything and I'm nothing. That he gives me all that I need. The unsearchable riches of Christ. So it doesn't matter what I said on Sunday. On Monday, he's still good. And so Paul goes on and he says this. Look, if you could get this, the unsearchable riches of Christ, how over and over again, how he is just good, and he's good, and he's good, and he's good. And Paul says that his, his passion in life is to preach to the Gentiles, everybody who doesn't know about Jesus, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. God has a plan through all of this and his riches are propelling me towards something. This is, it's this mystery, it's been hidden, but now it's being revealed, verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold 
wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, a couple of things I want you to key in on are this. The manifold wisdom of God. Paul says, it's my responsibility to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And what I want them to see is, is the unsearchable riches. But what, what's going to happen is this, is that that's going to create the church. Now, the church is not just a thing that you end up at on Sunday morning. It's not just something that you blow off and just say, um, you know, I just, yeah, I'm not really sure I want to be a part of it because, you know, I've got my own spirituality. It's just me and Jesus, right? It's not just something that you just say, you know, I'm kind of involved or I go to multiple churches or I go do this or that or whatever the, the thing is that you do. The church is this. It's God's people for all time. And it is here for a purpose. Do you see in verse 11, it says eternal purpose. It's not just like, for now, we're doing the church thing. We might do something later. No, God's eternal purpose is found in the body of believers. It's not in a building. It's not in an organization. It's in the body of believers. And the manifold, that word manifold, wisdom of God, the word manifold means this, the multifaceted wisdom of God, that God's wisdom, that his abilities, that who he is, is going to be displayed to the nations, to the authorities, to everyone through the church. Do you understand that if you're a part of the church, like if you're a Christian here this morning, that you have an eternal purpose, that you're not just here by accident, that you're not just a part of a, a church gathering, and you know what falls by the wayside? You know, I just, I'm just not really sure that I really liked the worship this morning. You know, that, that preacher guy, he, I mean, I, I'm not sure about his turquoise shirt, but uh, uh, I mean, those types of things, I, I feel every time I wear turquoise, I feel like I lose a little bit of my manhood, all right? My wife loves this shirt, and I got distracted just now, but um, I just realized I was wearing it, and so... What falls by the wayside is all of my preferences, is all of my ideas, all of our petty arguments, all of this and that and whatever else because of this. Like, let's, let's just take a step back. The manifold, the multifaceted wisdom of God is going to be displayed through the eternal purpose that's found in God's people, the church, through Jesus Christ. You've got the power, which is the spirit. But then you've got the passion, which is driven by this, the unsearchable riches of Christ and how that flows into his people that have an eternal purpose that's found in the church. Please, please take it seriously. The church is not something to trifle with. The church is not something that you just, oh, I just don't know if I'm going to be a part of that or not. Are, are you absolutely passionate about the unsearchable riches of Christ found in Jesus Christ through the cross? It should make you passionate about this. Now, this is, this is one of my favorites. One of my faves, as I say. Um, lol. Uh, verse 14. All right. Is that okay to use, you know, those, those things when you speak? I don't think it is, actually, but... Chapter 3, verse 14. Uh, for this reason, 
Chapter 3, verse 14. This is, this is awesome. For this reason, Paul says, it's for this reason, reason that I am bowing my knee before the Father. I'm going to pray for you from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. What this means is this, is that every family is an imperfect picture of the true family, which is found in God the Father. He's a father. We're a part of a family. The unsearchable riches of Christ come from the adoption that comes to us from God when he includes us in his family. And so he says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. Remember, we just talked about that. In your inner being, now why does he want you to be strengthened with power? You have the spirit of God. He's talking to Christians. You have the spirit. Through his spirit in your inner being. Read that with me. Verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Listen. We become Christians. You might have said, I gave my life to Christ at this point. You might have been raised in the church. You, may, you might have gotten saved last week. But here's the thing. Like, you can be a Christian. And you can have the Spirit of God. But, but Paul says this. I want more for you. You're saved, yes. But I want more for you. I don't just want you to be one of those comfortable Christians who just kind of hangs out and does their own thing. I don't just want, want you to be somebody who's weak sauce, who never really engages with God and with his people or serves or gives or grows, just kind of waiting for eternity to happen. I don't, I don't want that for you. Paul says this, I am praying for you that he's going to strengthen you through his spirit and your inner being so that not only are you going to be a Christian, but that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that through that, that you would be rooted and grounded in love. I love the NIV version better. That you may be rooted and established in love and may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Listen, Christians, if you're going to be passionate, if you want, if you want to see the heights, the depths, the width, everything about God, if you want to understand Him, if you want to drink deeply of the riches of God, then He this is what's got to happen, that Christ has got to dwell in your hearts through faith. That you've got to be rooted and grounded in his love, which is ultimately found in the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you don't get the cross, then you don't get anything. If you don't understand who Jesus is, then you don't understand anything about Christianity. 
Paul says, I want you to be so rooted and grounded in love that you're not just going to have Christ as a resident in your life or your little country, but he is literally going to be in charge. He's going to be like the president of your life. He's not just somebody that's just kind of hanging out and it's just me and Jesus and, um, you know, he's my homeboy or something. But he is the one who's knocking at the door and he's saying, I want to come in and I want to dine with you and I want to spend time with you and I want to have a relationship with you. But too many of us are content with just everyday Christianity that says this, I don't have time for God and his church because I'm too busy or I have too many things going on. But what you don't see is that you, there's an eternal purpose that's going to show the manifold wisdom of God. And the reason why you don't see that, if we work our way backwards, is because of this. Because you're not rooted and grounded in love. You may be a Christian, but Christ isn't dwelling in your heart through faith. And I don't claim to even know exactly what Paul means by this, but somehow he thinks that there's people who are believers that somehow Christ isn't fully dwelling in their life. You're going to have to ask Paul when you see him. I don't want to be one of those people. And I started a church because I didn't want to be one of those people. Not because we're better than anybody else or because of anything, but because God called me to do what we're doing here now. God called me to this ministry right here and right now. And there's lots of other ministries in this town that are fulfilling their calling. But this is what God has called me to. And we want to live life outward. And living life outward means this. That if we're not rooted and grounded in love by the power of the Holy Spirit, then nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to take place. And nothing else matters. And I could sit up here and I could try to beat you up. I, I have been very good at giving guilt trips. I'm a preacher, right? You think that that's what you came for. But I just want you to know that this isn't about a guilt trip. It's about a love trip. I know that sounds like the 60s, but... Uh, try to, like, put out of your mind anything that has to do with acid right now, but... Uh, or any other... Hallucinogen. Where was I? Uh, I I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Paul's prayer. I'm going to go on to the product. We're talking about the power. Talking about the passion. But if I go, if I, if we start with the product and say, okay, this is what we need to have. Out. Just, I'm going to try really hard to do this. You're missing it. So I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I, I could say it really loudly or whatever. I just want to tell you this. Like, if you try to serve God and you don't have the power or the passion to do that, it's, it's pointless. You're working for yourself and it, it will end in dismay. So chapter four is really where I wanted to get today because chapter four in Ephesians is really what got my motor going because I had been a part of church for a long time and I always felt like this little kid that was like, hey, can I do that? Hey, can I do that? Can I do that? Can I do that? And it's like, no, 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 no. This is for the professionals, young man. You, uh, you need to go back to whatever I was doing. And now I'm in the, no, that, that's, that's for them. I, I was always like, I want to do it. I want to be a part of it. 
And I, then I read Ephesians 4. I don't know why it took me so long in my Christian life to read this, but Ephesians 4 told me something that said what I believed in my heart already, which was, I think God works this way, and then Ephesians 4 confirmed it. And so Paul begins in Ephesians 4 to lay something out. He begins to lay out, okay, once you know this, the riches, the unsearchable riches of Christ, now you can do this. And so he says, verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. If you have that calling to experience the indwelling of Jesus Christ and the unsearchable riches that come with him, I want to ask you to live a life worthy of that calling. Now, some of you have been raised with a Christianity that says this, live this way and then you'll experience God. But that's not what the real theology says. Real theology says this, since this is true of you, since God has poured out his riches, now I want you to live this way. And this is what Paul is saying. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I want to skip to verse 11 where it says this, that God has given gifts to men. Verse 11 says this, and he gave the apostles. That's one type of gifting that he had given to those specific men who had been called by Jesus himself. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. And I want to stop right there. I don't know if you saw that. But what that says is this. Is that there's people who've been gifted in a particular way. There, there, there were apostles in their day. But there are prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. We're talking about pastors. We're talking about people with different giftings. Who are put on this earth to not just be the people who are doing ministry, but what does it say? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for, the building, up the, uh, for building up the body of Christ. So what this means is that those of us who have been called to lead in ministry are not the people who are just doing all the ministry. We definitely do ministry, but we are here to lead God's flock his church, what's going to display the manifold wisdom of God, we are here to equip the saints, that's all of us, for the work of ministry. Now, what does this mean? It doesn't just mean that you're here as someone who's a part of it. It doesn't mean that you just come and you experience it. It doesn't mean uh, that you're just even marginally involved. It means this, that to inherently be a part of the church means this, that you are being equipped. You're being equipped for the work of ministry. And he says, for the building up, for building up the body of Christ. So the body of Christ, the way that it grows, the way that our church multiplies, the way that things happen here is this, is that when I'm equipped, what happens? 
I grow. Are you stuck in life? Are you stuck in your Christian life feeling like, you know what, I'm not really sure that I'm, I'm really getting this. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get into uh, another area with God. But here, here's the thing. You've been someone who's probably, you, you, you possibly could have been on the fringe. You've been on the fringe. You've kind of been marginally involved. You're not really connected. And so what's happening is this, is that you're not being equipped for ministry. And so as a result, the building up of the body of Christ is not happening in your life. But what's going to happen is this, until... We all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. True Christian growth comes when people who have the power of God through the Spirit, have the passion of God through the unsearchable riches of Christ, are driven to serve Christ to be equipped for ministry, and this is what causes our church to produce a product of people coming to know Jesus. And not just that, but of us growing in unity. Churches that lack in unity often are churches who are not serving together. They've gotten so comfortable. We've got the people who are doing ministry, and we pay them, and the rest of us are going to fight about the carpet. The rest of us are going are gonna, to... Uh, you know, go complain about these things that we don't like or our pet project. It's because they're not involved in the work of ministry. And he says, and there's going to be this fullness of Christ that happens to the point, verse 14, that says this, so that we may no longer be children. So that we may no longer be children. It's as if Paul is saying, you know what? If I, if I could say this with all the love and affection that I truly have for all of us in this room. Paul is saying there's an immaturity about us when we refuse to serve within the church. There's an immaturity when we refuse to be equipped. It's an immaturity. And, and Paul says, you're going you're gonna to stop being a child. You're going to stop being a kid. And I'm going to stop being a kid. When I wrap my brain around this idea that, that he's called me to serve. The whole purpose behind the church is not for the people who are really gifted to do ministry. It's that every part of us has a responsibility. Where we began with this was this. We had so many college students in our midst. And what we said to them was this. People have been doing ministry for you for years. You've been the one that's been ministered to. You've been lulled to sleep by youth pastor after youth pastor. Or by people who said, no, no, no. You just kind of hold on. Let the professionals do it. Lulled to sleep. But here's what you must understand. That God has specifically appointed that you would be somebody who is deeply involved in serving him. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves. And carried about by every wind of doctrine. By human, cu human cunning 
by craftiness and deceitful schemes, you're not going to be thrown off by weird teachings, by people who are just after your money, or by weird theologies. You're going to know. You're going to understand. You're not going to be somebody who, who just falls for anything because there's a knowledge that's happening because you're involved. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is what I came here to tell you today. He put up the graphic from the uh, series. The campaign to live radically on mission begins with this. That we have a power source in the spirit of God that has caused us to understand who he is and to lay out the unsearchable riches of Christ. And if you are passionate about that, and if you are grounded in the love of God that's found in Jesus Christ, then what's going to happen is this, is that you're going to be somebody who's on mission. You're going to be somebody who's not just on mission at the church, but you're going to be somebody who's on mission in your work and in your school and in your home. You're a missionary to your kids. If you have kids, now you get to teach them. You get to preach to the little Gentiles. The little, that's a nice way of saying it, little Gentiles, I'll leave it at that. The unsearchable riches of Christ. You get to preach to them. Don't, don't be, don't be fooled into thinking that, oh, I have no one to preach to. No, your kids have got to begin with that. Parents go, oh, I, d I don't understand how this happened. My child walked away from the faith. And I, I just want to say to anybody here who has kids that have walked away from the faith or who are not walking with them, I, have, I don't have a postage stamp to step on because my kids aren't grown up yet. So we'll see how this works out for me, right? Uh, but here's the thing. In theory, this is how it's supposed to work out. I'll say that. If you know and love the gospel and you teach your kids to know and love the gospel, there is a high, high likelihood that your kids are going to know and love the gospel when they get older. But if you're somebody who says, okay, we better get a good youth pastor so that he can do the work of ministry in my home, then you're going to have problems. I can, I can guarantee it. We've seen it because you're raising little Gentiles. You've, you've got to bring them to know Jesus. What this means is that when you're in your home and when you're in your workplace, that the only way to tell people about Jesus, the only way to live outward, the only way to live on mission is to be completely sold out by the unsearchable riches of Christ, that there's no way you can't tell them about Jesus. There's no way that you can't build relationship with, the, with them to the point where, you, where you, you've invited them into your life. And so you can in, invite them into your home. You could invite them into your church. Because of the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
You're somebody who's on mission. It's not just that you're helping with children, with parking, with greeting, but you're on mission as each part does its work. You see this in Acts when they're like, you know, I'm just inherently on mission because I'm a Christian. It's not like, okay, you're in this group, you're in this group, you're in this group, you're in this group. Okay, have to meet with these people and we're going to talk about these questions and all of these things. No, it's we love Jesus. We want to be on mission. And so what we do is we talk about Jesus. And we talk about loving him and we talk about serving in our community. And so what this means for our church is this, is that we've changed everything. From our groups being totally focused on being question and answer based groups to being groups that are saying this. Okay, we know and love Jesus. What's that mean for our community? And how do we invite people to be a part of what we're doing? And I want to tell you, it works. I want to tell you that it works. Let's stop having awkward conversations with people that don't know anything about what happened at our church service today. And let's start talking with them about what's going on in their everyday life. Caring about them, loving them, praying for them, serving them. Let's, let's start uh, serving people in a way that's just like, we just want to be in the community. We don't want anything from you. We just want to be in the community and we want to serve you. We want to, we want to get to know you. We want to love you. It works. And so we can be Christian people who say, okay, instead of us trying to create this kind of Christian ease type environment, let's say this. Okay, I'm a Christian, and I like to do fun things. And there are people who are not Christians, and they like to do fun things. Why don't we just do something fun? Why don't we do something fun? That's what we did in, in my community group. I was in my community group on a regular basis, and we're sitting around, we're talking about questions, and I'm kind of dying a little bit inside each time we're asking questions, and part of it's because it's about a sermon that sometimes I'm like, I didn't really like that sermon today, and I don't really want to bring it up again, right? And so I'm like, you know, let's, what should we be doing today? And so I began to think to myself, what could we do that would matter eternally rather than just talking about what we already just talked about? And so we said... Let's just do something that we can invite people to. Let's go serve our neighbors, which we did. And we made a huge mess of their front yard, and I had to clean it up this last week because everybody else is doing regular work, and I'm a pastor, so apparently I have all, all this time. <laughs> That's besides the point, and I'm not bitter about that, but... So we go over and we, we rip out their front yard, which needed it. And then we, we take all that stuff and we, and we trash it. And then, and then we go over there another week. And I think I invited a lot of people because my group is small. And uh, went over there and said, okay, well, when I help you with your backyard? And they said, we don't really want you in our backyard. And I said, oh, come on. Can we please go back there? And they said, okay, that's fine. <laughs> and so we went back there and walked back there with uh, one of our guys who's an excavator. We walk back there and he says, oh man, we need to get a, a mini excavator out here. And I'm like, I don't have a mini excavator. He says, I got one around the corner. I was like, are you serious right now? He's like, yeah. And so he goes over, he gets the little mini excavator. We crawl in their backyard and just tear it out, right? I mean, just rip the thing out. And we get this pile of brush on their front yard. And it, it's, they're thanking us over and over again. And we have the opportunity to just hang out with people that we wouldn't normally hang out with. 
And we got to invite, the, the time before we got to invite them over for a barbecue and got to know them a little bit in their life and what they're doing. Let me ask you this. How are you living on mission? Or are you involved in just a bunch of Christianese type activities? How are you living on mission? I, I want to, don't get me wrong here. We need Bible studies, but we probably need less Bible studies because we've always been preparing and never actually playing. We're always preparing, always preparing, always preparing, and never playing. We're just always practicing. I'm just becoming a disciple, just becoming a disciple. But do you realize that just become, that you're not a disciple if you're not making disciples? If you're, if, you, if you're a disciple who's never making a disciple, you're never contributing on that level, you're, you're not being a disciple. A disciple inherently makes disciples. This campaign to live, li live life radically on mission means this, that we're going to get out of ourselves and we're going to do things differently from here on out. Why? Because there's a power source. There's a passion and we want to see the product of what God's going to do in our city. And I hope that you're with me. And let me just say this. August and September are horrible months for giving. And that's proven true this, this year as well. Would you please give if you're a part of the church to help us on this mission? So I, I want to ask you. I'm going to teach you on giving soon. I'm not going to tell you when because you won't show up. Um, but here's the thing. Please try to give close to 10% of your income, it would help us be on mission. I, I just, I, I just got to be honest with you. It would help us be on mission. 10% is not a rule. It's from the Old Testament. But Jesus gave all, and so shouldn't we. So what does that mean? Give generously to what God is doing at his church here today. Be generous with what God has given you. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would work mightily in this city. We ask that you would work mightily in our lives and in our hearts. God, we ask that this would not just be a place that's just committed to showing up on Sundays, but God, we ask that we would be people who are living radically on mission, who love you so much and who care about you so much and are just so passionate because of your unsearchable riches and that it just goes and it goes and it goes and so Lord I pray that we'd live that way Lord that we'd get out of this Christian bubble and Lord that we'd be into what you have for us so God we ask you for this we pray that you do something incredible in our lives that you do something incredible in your church and Lord that it would be unbelievable that people would say what is going on here we could say we're not drinking it's only nine in the morning but Jesus is doing something in our midst and you just gotta see it may that be true of us in your name we pray amen